One of my all-time favorite movies is the film A River Runs Through It that was produced by Robert Redford. I could watch that movie over and over and over again and never, ever get tired of it. The film tells the true story of the McLean family who had two sons, Norman, played by Craig Sheffer, and Paul, played by a very young Brad Pitt. They grew up in Missoula, Montana back in the 1920s under the watchful eye of their father, who was a Presbyterian minister. Their mornings are spent in school and in religious study, while their afternoons are devoted to fly fishing at the nearby Blackfoot River. At home, however, the family's stoic emotions hint at trouble that is to come. Norman goes off to school to the East Coast uh, and lives there for six years before he ever comes back to Montana. And Paul stays at home, gets a job as a prolific journalist at the local newspaper, and makes a name for himself in the town of Missoula. The movie is about Norman's return back home and how he and his brother Paul are reunited and they spend the summer together. As adults, Paul is a rebellious journalist and his brother Norman is a level-headed, grounded teacher. Norman matures and channels his rebellion through his writing while dating a girl named Jesse Burns from a nearby town. But his reckless brother Paul turns to gambling and liquor and living on the edge. The film tells the story of their intertwining and often conflicting lives, focusing on Norman's firsthand perspective, and they grow up in the shadow of their minister father. The film shows the family's love of fly fishing in the Montana rivers and also their shared experiences while growing up. It's a moving story about two sons who come from the same parents but who couldn't be different, more different. Any of you have multiple children who couldn't be more different? We're continuing this series through Luke's gospel and we've been in this series of parables. We looked at the Good Samaritan, Last week when we kicked off our stewardship campaign, we looked at the parable of the rich fool. And today we come to Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. British scholar C.H. Dodd once said that the precise application of a parable should tease our minds into active thought. Which means that we should always revisit and keep thinking about the parables that Jesus told. And we might be surprised. The parables that we have known ever since we were children will speak to us in different ways when we get to different stages of our lives. That's the beauty of the Bible. It's timeless. It will speak to us in new ways, given what we might be going through or what we might be dealing with at any given time. Jesus tells us about a man who had two sons. The younger one came to him and asked for his share of the inheritance, and then he left for a distant country, squandering all of his wealth, living a life of debauchery and immorality. The Bible doesn't go into much detail as to what that involved, but you can use your imagination. The older son stayed back home and remained loyal and faithful to his father by working very hard on the land. One day, when the younger son runs out of money, he finds himself without a job or with a job, but he's feeding the pigs, and he thinks to himself, you know, even my father's servants have a better life than this. And so he decides to go back home, 
and he's not quite sure how he's going to be received, but much to his surprise, his father runs out, welcomes him with open arms, forgives him, puts a robe on him, a ring on his finger, and throws a ginormous party in his honor. But the older son, who had been out working in the fields, hears of what's going on, and he becomes very, very angry at the situation. His father comes out to plead with him and invites him to come inside. Uh, and, and, and the older son says, no, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you've never thrown me a party like this. But when this son of yours, who has devoured all your property, who's been with prostitutes, who's lived a reckless and irresponsible life, when he comes back, you throw a big celebration. I just don't get it, Dad. The father says to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead, and he's come to life. He was lost, and he's now been found. Right after Easter this year, we're going to offer a four-week series, as I mentioned that's going to be a marriage and relationship enrichment course on Wednesday nights. We'll begin April the 24th. And I'd recommend this class to anybody who wants to grow in their marriage, grow in their relationship, enhance their communications, be more intentional about being a better husband or a wife or a boyfriend or girlfriend. But it's going to be led by a guy named Kevin Roberts. And Kevin is a minister who is well-versed in what's called family systems theory. And the basic idea behind family systems theory, I studied it in seminary, although not in depth, the basic idea is that the family system is a cohesive emotional unit. Family members are emotionally connected. Every member plays a role. And the actions and the behavior of one member has a direct impact on all the other members. So when people feel disconnected from other members of the family, then it has an impact on their emotions and their actions. That, in a nutshell, is family systems theory. So if you study family systems theory, it might cause you to ask questions like these. What impact does divorce have on a family? Why does that one child seem to be the favorite? You know, the, uh, the one who just, when he puts on a sport coat and shows up for dinner, he's the hero, right? Why does he seem to be the favorite? Why does the mother-in-law always seem to get involved in her daughter's marital disputes? What role has alcoholism and addiction played in the family's history? What is the long-term effect of a suicide in the family system? Why do some grandparents seem to live for their grandchildren while others say, I'm here if you need me, but please don't call? <laughs> Why would people pay exorbitant amounts of money to get their kids into certain colleges? Or even worse, why would they pay exorbitant amounts of money so somebody could go cheat on the ACT to get them into certain colleges? These are the kind of questions that family systems theory will cause you to ask and wrestle with. Now, you've heard me say over the years that there is no such thing as a normal family. Every family is unique. Every family has drama. Every family has conflict. Every family has issues. 
Why is that? It's because we're all human. We're not perfect. But some families are much better than others at managing the drama and the conflict. Some families are more resilient than others at bouncing back from the things that life might throw their way. So the movie, A River Runs Through It, and this parable of the prodigal son are excellent examples of how the actions of one family member greatly impact the others. The dysfunction of one family member affects everybody else. The irresponsibility of one family member has an impact on the entire family. One of the best books ever written on this parable is by Henry Nouwen. The book is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. When Nouwen traveled, he got to St. Petersburg uh, to the Hermitage Museum, and he was just absolutely captivated by Rembrandt's painting of this parable. And he spent many hours and even many days just staring at Rembrandt's vision of the father welcoming back the prodigal son. Let's consider the characters of this parable. First of all, the prodigal, the one who asks for his inheritance early and then goes away and blows all of his money in a foreign land. According to Nowen, the prodigal son, his son's decision to leave is a heartless rejection of the home in which he was born and nurtured and a break from the community and tradition of which he was a part. When Luke tells us that he left for a distant country, he is talking about a drastic cutting loose from the way of living, thinking, and acting that has been handed down to him from generation to generation as a sacred legacy of that family. And even more than disrespect, it's a betrayal of the treasured values of family and community. And truly, this was an unprecedented move in biblical times, a clear rejection of his family of origin and a clear sign of disrespect towards his father. The prodigal son makes a conscious decision to turn away from his family out of selfish ambition and the belief that there would be something far better, far greater out there if he just ran away, that he would be more fulfilled and he had a restless streak, and so he does it. Usually, when somebody makes a decision to leave their family, it comes from anger or resentment or jealousy, revenge, lust, greed, and many other unhealthy emotions. And usually the decision causes a lot of pain and hurt for the other family members that are left behind. But as we know, the prodigal son made a mistake. And he came to realize that. And when he ran out of money, he made the decision to come back home. Now I want us to spend a lot of time this morning thinking about the mindset of the elder son. The one who gets so angry when his brother returns after being gone all those years. He simply doesn't understand why his father would throw such a huge party for a child that had left and taken his inheritance, disrespected the family, who had been irresponsible and unloyal and reckless. Just as the younger son was lost in a distant country, the older son, I think, is lost at home. According to Henry Nouwen, his lostness is characterized by judgment and condemnation, anger and resentment, bitterness and jealousy, all of which is so pernicious and so damaging 
to the human heart. He is a proud, unkind, and selfish person who has hidden his feelings for far too long. And then all of a sudden, when this party is thrown, these feelings come bursting out. And if we're honest, all of us would admit that there are times when we live our lives this way, with this mindset, with this type of emotions. We're good people. We do what is expected of us. We follow the rules. We work hard and we plug away, but we also can whine and grumble and complain about everything that happens. We suppress our feelings, and then when somebody else receives a blessing, somebody else catches some kind of a break, we just can't be happy for them because our heart is so full of malice and envy. The older brother in this parable reminds us that jealousy and resentment and contempt is perhaps the number one joy killer in our culture. And he simply cannot understand why in the world his father would welcome his brother back with a party, with joy and thanksgiving. I was having a conversation this week with somebody that I know in this town who is a highly regarded marriage and family therapist. And we were talking, and I mentioned that I was working on a sermon for this a parable. I mentioned Nowen's book that's always been a classic, I think, on this parable. But um, this person has been in private practice for many, many years, even decades. And, and we were talking about the subject of bitterness and resentment. And he told me something. And this stuck with me. He said, after being in marriage and family therapy for decades... I am absolutely convinced that bitterness and resentment lead to an early death. Why? He says, because I've seen it. These are not healthy emotions, yet many people live with them day in and day out. So the question is, how can we avoid living lives full of bitterness and full of contempt? How can we avoid this mindset that the elder brother had in this parable? There are some obvious answers. The first would be, choose your relationships carefully. Be very careful who you invest time and energy with. The company that we keep and the people that we surround ourselves with matter. Surround yourselves with people who will bring out the best in you and not the worst in you. Surround yourselves with people who will lift you up, not pull you down. Surround yourselves with people that are hopeful and positive, not always negative and cynical. A second answer is forgiveness. Learn to forgive and let go. Learn to move on from the past and don't keep bringing up the same old things over and over again. You know, forgiveness doesn't mean that we forget. Forgiveness just means that we've moved on. And yes, you can forgive people who don't think they need forgiveness. I would even say there is a need to forgive people who don't even ask for forgiveness or don't even, uh, aren't even aware that they should ask for forgiveness. But for your sake, you need to forgive them. The third answer, I would say, is focus on the condition of your own heart. This is what Jesus was all about. What is the state of your heart, your soul? There's a lot of projection in this culture. All of us are capable of taking out our anger and our frustration 
and our dissatisfaction on people who don't deserve it, which simply means that we have more inner work to do. We need to pray more. We need to read more. We need to exercise more. We need to smile more. We need to reflect more. We need to nurture our soul more on a regular, even daily basis. What about the father in this parable? I once heard somebody say that this should be called the parable of the loving father, not the parable of the prodigal son. Because the father is kind of the hero in this parable, isn't he? The father in this parable can represent God. And God cares for both of his sons, the one who left and the one who stayed loyal. God is willing to forgive the sins of the past and welcome his son back with open arms. God is willing to look past the fact that at at one point the son wanted nothing to do with him and yet he forgives him out of love and compassion. The God that we serve as Christians is just like this father. He's a God of unconditional love, a God that gives us a second chance and a third chance and as many chances as we might need. And we should all be thankful for that. We worship the God of the lost and the God of the faithful, the God of the resentful and the God of the loving, the God of the angry and the God of the merciful, the God of the jealous and the God of the selfless. We worship the God whose love, who, where people love him in return, and the God who is surely aware that some people don't. But God is still God, and God loves us. But this parable always causes me to think about families, family dynamics, family drama, family dysfunction, family redemption. Every family has baggage, and every family has some type of drama. In counseling, I usually find that it's built around unmet expectations that are there. Every family has rivalry, jealousy, tension. Every family has unique dynamics that create drama, resentment, and heartache. And if you think think that your family is unique, I'm here to tell you that it's not. It's simply not. So what lessons can we take from this parable about our own family life? First lesson is you can't run away from your problems in life. You also should try not to run away from your your family. We don't know exactly why the younger brother asked for his inheritance, but he clearly thought that he could go out and find a better life. But he was wrong. For whatever reason, he wasn't happy, but he failed to realize that he actually had a pretty good situation. Human beings are masters at being restless, and we often think that there is always a better life waiting somewhere else, and so we fail to appreciate what we have, and we take, take off in hopes to go find something bigger and better, but often we just don't find it. Now, I'm certainly not saying that there aren't situations where relationships need to end and where family members feel like they have to get out. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is that sometimes people just think if they just move on down the road or they go find somebody else that they're going to be happier and much more fulfilled. But you know what the problem is? Wherever they go, there they are. And often the same issues that came up before will come up once again. A second lesson is the message that 
Envy and jealousy and resentment can do a lot of damage to our souls. The older brother was full of envy and jealousy, and it was eating at him. He was so angry that he just couldn't let it go. Somebody once said, and this is a famous quote, holding on to anger and resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for somebody else to die. And so many times in life when we don't forgive, when we don't let things go, we're the ones who suffer. You know, going through life with the mindset of the older brother is no way to live because life is far too short. Lastly, from the father, we learn the importance of redemption, forgiveness, unconditional love. If we believe that the father represents God in this parable, then we are reminded that we serve a God of new beginnings, a God who has his arms open wide and is ready to receive us no matter what has happened. In this parable, the father practiced forgiveness and grace. He was so happy that his son was alive and had come back home that that's all he wanted to do was throw a party and welcome him. He probably didn't even think about the fact that his older son would be so upset. It's been said before that if you may never know how wonderful grace is until you desperately need it yourself. And we sing the words of that classic hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's only when you are at the end of your rope that you understand what an incredible gift the grace of God is. Amen.